so very quickly before we get started, um, like in most um, most webinars, um, all the participants have been muted. There's nothing personal as to avoid background noise. Um, and cameras have been automatically turned off to save bandwidth and um, so we can focus on, on the slide. Um, and what I would really encourage you to do is if you have any strong reaction or questions or comments, to please use its chat function. And uh, when we come to Q&A at the end, we can, uh, we can revert to those comments and questions that would be most helpful. That always makes it so much more fun. Um, also at the end, please stay throughout, if you can, throughout the whole webinar, because we'll have a short poll um, at the end of the webinar to, to conclude the session. Next slide. So a uh, quick introduction for me, I'm Christelle Delby, and um, I recently joined SAPA. And for today, um, I will be doing a quick introduction to the topics that we're talking about, discussing, and I will facilitate our fantastic speakers um, and get their input on the, uh, on the theme of the day. Next, thank you. So first of all, um, next please. First of all, I think it might be useful to, to recap on what we mean about the scope of what we're discussing today. Um, so first of all, when we talk about resilience, what do we mean? Um, so of course, we don't just mean resilience in terms of quantity and quality of, of, of you know, what's being produced by supply chain. We mean resilience to things like environmental impact, uh, social, social aspects, but also ethical and regulatory pressures. And then when we talk about raw material, um, it's, it's important to, to, to clarify that we're, we'll be focusing on agricultural raw material today with the examples that we have. Uh, but of course, raw materials also mean anything extracted from the soil, soil like you know, um, a steel, gas, and, 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 and natural glass, gas, for example. So, but for today, it's all about agricultural raw material. Next slide. So first of all, I think it's fair to say, um, in terms of you know responsible sourcing, that it's it's really gaining momentum. And the key, I would say, the key driver behind um, you know responsible sourcing is is regulatory pressure. Um, there's been a number of countries, for example, in the um, in Europe, uh, like France and Germany, and also the UK was UK Modern Slavery Act that are really pushing for corporates to understand where their produce, where their produce come from, where their sourcing comes from, and understand the risk and be able to show that they are taking action to minimize um, the minimize the impact throughout their value chain. It's no longer acceptable um, comparing to 20 years ago for a company to source you know, source material for, for its production and not be aware of, of you know, the, the, that value chain. Another trend that's um, actually, you, you could take it in different ways. Um, consumers are increasingly, I mean, this is what we read everywhere, that millennials, you know, are asking more and more of brands in terms of, you know, on minimizing the social environmental impact of, of, the, the, of the manufacturer, the sourcing of their brand. And um, this said, I have to say that it, I'm not sure this is transforming, you know, translating into the consumers willing to pay 
for those um, for those benefits. Um, so I think it's a bit of a, I would say those those numbers are to be taken with a pinch of salt. And finally, in terms of business consideration, big trend that's happening at the moment is is it's a revolution in terms of the financial sector really getting their act together in putting together assessment grid to really try to understand the um, environmental social impact of the of the client that they have and this is in turn putting pressure on the corporates to be transparent measure their impact and report on it um, and of course last but not least um, many most global company would have signed to the UN uh, global um, SDGs and they are also committing to net zero target and this is in in turn impacting their sourcing because with with net zero targets you obviously have scope three emission which is the hardest of them all and um, with agricultural food value chain there is a great opportunity to affect change next please so why why is agricultural commodities are why are agri agricultural commodities sourcing a key a key thing well there's a data that's not there actually which is the fact that about agricultural commodity account for about a quarter of all global gsg emission and that in itself is 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 huge um agricultural commodity sourcing is linked to you know um devastating in fact impact in terms of deforestation for example and disappearance, you know, uh, extinction of plant and animal species. So that's the impact is huge. Makes matter to matters worse. Demand is growing. Of course, the world population is growing, putting further demand on the um, on the the production, the need to produce agricultural commodities. And on top of it, the consumption per capita is also increasing. So that's like you can see how that's having a multiplying effect. And to make matters worse, a third angle is that we can anticipate, we anticipate that um, climate change will have will make it even harder to get the kind of yield that we're that we need to have to, to, to feed the world population. Next slide, please. Now, within the context of agricultural value chain, we will be today focusing most specifically on smallholders. And why is that? The reason why smallholder value chains are essential to, to be looked at is because they, they carry a heavy load of the food, the, food, the, the um, agricultural production um, worldwide. So for example, in Asia and Sub-Sahara Sub Africa, they are providing 80% of, of all food. So you can see how that's, you know, that's really key. And on top of it, there is a big connection. There's a big you know, dovetail between um, a smallholder and poverty with most smallholders in the world living, being the, the poorest, um, the, the poorest out there. To make matters worse, COVID come on top of it to exacerbate all the socioeconomic um, you know, condition that the, those smallholders live in, whether it's through health impact of COVID or through this, this disturbance of the value chain that they're part of, affecting their ability to access fertilizer, seeds, or harvesting equipment. Next. So I'm the bearer of bad news um, and setting the scene, uh, but not all is lost because 
Um, there are uh, a lot of um, fantastic organizations out there seeking solution, working hard to deploy solution to reverse the tide of environmental and, and social impact that uh, agricultural uh, value chain um, are you know, asymptomatic of. So today we've got, we've invited um, Shivani Kanabiran from the OECD, who will give us uh, a, a, an insight into some of the tools, the guidelines, the guidance that the OECD provide uh, to, for agricultural value chain. And then we will we'll invite Helen Vermont from Michelin to tell us a little bit about the sustainable sourcing um, approach at Michelin. And then finally, we'll close off with Farid Badash from XAPA, who will tell, tell us a little bit more about some of the solutions that XAPA has been uh, working on. Shivani, um, over to you. And I invite everyone to please be on the chat and uh, feel free to comment and ask questions. And I'll keep an eye on it. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Christelle. And uh, good afternoon to everyone, or good morning if you're dialing in from uh, across the, the pond. Um, very pleased to be with all of you today. And uh, I'd like to just spare a couple of minutes uh, talking you through what we're doing at the OECD on responsible business conduct. And in particular, in this really important sector of um, agriculture. Uh, could we go to the next slide, please? So uh, at the OECD, and I think many of you probably know the OECD, it's famous for a whole range of, of um, policies um, and standards. Uh, we cover a wide range of issues, um, including uh, investment and responsible business. And so I work in the Center for Responsible Business Conduct. And what we do really is we put forward uh, international standards. So these are standards that are government-backed. On what, what's the expectation today in terms of, of you know, being a responsible business player? Uh, and we have a number of, of, of standards out there. And the ones that I'm going to really focus on today is really the um, linked to our other ship, I would say, which is the guidelines of multinational. And these are expectations uh, from governments to companies, and they're aligned with the UN guiding principles of business and human rights. And when we speak about issues around labor, it's aligned with ILO uh, conventions. Um, an important development is this notion of due diligence in supply chains, in particular risk-based due diligence. And back in 2011, um, the OECD really started putting together their thoughts on like, what exactly does due diligence mean? the specifics of it, the actual steps of it, and, and importantly, how due diligence can be incorporated by operating along the full value chain. So when we speak about companies or even supply chains, we're really talking about the full value chain. So investors to, of course, in the agri-supply chain, um, food, um, food producers in the production side, processing and distribution. Farid, would you mind going back to the previous slide? Sorry, there was just one other point I wanted to cover. Um, one of our biggest challenges really today is, you know, in, a, in some ways we kind of have the guidances, and you, you all know that, if, uh, all of you are aware of all the different guidances that are out there, guidelines that are the standards that are out there. The question is actually implementation and implementation at scale. So I hope we'll get to some of those um, ideas in today's um, call. Um, and for us, implementation is scaled. There are a number of levers at the OECD countries. Um, countries are the OECD members. There are 38 countries globally. And actually, for these um, recommendations and instruments, we've actually got about 50 countries around the world that signed up to it. So you've got 50 
governments around the world that back up and support these recommendations. So we work with governments to promote and monitor the standards. We also work very closely, surprisingly, I think for many people, uh, directly with business and industry groups, particularly groups like certification standards or standard setters. Um, and then we also have uh, through national contact points that actually promote OECD standards and handle any non-compliance to um, our uh, recommendations. Next slide, please. The, the particular um, set of, of, of uh, due diligence recommendations I want to speak to you about is the OECD FAO guidance for responsible agricultural supply chains. So it's really um, food and non-food commodities that we're looking at here. It really is the, the value add of this guidance is that it's a five-step framework, quite a simple, um, I think to many people in business, it will not be rocket science. It's, it's, uh, it's quite a, a, a clear um, framework for putting steps that managers can, can start taking to actually understand their supply chains, map them, um, prioritize the risk, because as you know, it's impossible to handle all risks at the same time. And we've got some very clear recommendations on how to do that. And then what actions one can take depending on the risk. And so the, the tile that you see here with the tomatoes on it, that's actually the, um, that's the guidance itself. And it's bro broken down into uh, a number of, of areas. And I would encourage you to, to have a look at that. As I mentioned, it's the full value chain. So you see it talks, talks to investors, producers, traders, food manufacturers, distributors, retailers. It's aligned with all of the, um, the standards that you're probably familiar with in the um, responsible business and agricultural sector, so including UN, ILO, also CFSRI, the voluntary guidelines for governance and tenure of land, etc. One highlight is that these are recommendations, they're not regulations, all right? So regulations come from countries itself. And the final point is that it really is comprehensive risk coverage. So it's not just human rights, it's not just the environment, uh, it's not just health and safety, but, but you can see down here the, the circles, you'll see the, the range of, of risks that um, the OECD FAO guidance covers. And it was developed together with obviously OECD, FAO, business, civil society, trade representatives, supply chain experts, um, and policymakers as well. Uh, next slide, please. And this is the final slide. So as I mentioned in this outset, the focus now is really implementation, or even one would say change at scale. Um, we all know the, um, the challenges we're up against. Uh, we have a thing out. Um, and so some of the yeah, is one is integrating our recommendations into regulatory frameworks and industry standards. We see those as being a real um, leveler of the playing field. It's all very well to get an, a few, you know, progressive companies on board, but what we are seeing is that you kind of do need a bit more of a nudge to get others involved. But here I'd also add the, the carrot in some ways, and one of the more recent work streams that I'm also leading is integrating responsible business conduct and OECD risk-based due diligence into public procurement, because that's a, a big part of government budgets as well. Um, alignment assessments is another, another area. As you know, in the agricultural sector, there are lots of certification schemes out there, you know, in palm oil, soy, coffee, I mean, pretty much cocoa, any, any commodity you'll have some, either, you know, looking at a specific issue, you know, it could be environmental risk, sometimes it's human rights risk, sometimes it's a variety of risks. 
And what we are doing is developing a methodology and then actually piloting alignment of those certification schemes to our OECD recommendations. Um, and I think that's another big lever um, to get changed. Uh, of course, there's always the basics of communications, materials, and brochures. Our materials tend, we get, uh, we get the feedback that they tend to still be rather dense. <laughs> so we have uh, been doing a lot of work to actually create brochures and sort of easier to understand materials, um, but also to just integrate these references into global um, international declarations, G7, G20, and this also helps uh, get movement um, at a global level. Uh, and then, of course, capacity building and training uh, remains uh, a real need amongst um, almost all companies, um, as you can imagine, particularly with uh, SMEs. And I'm happy to let you all know that we've actually just launched this summer, um, in July, uh, our OECD e-learning academy for responsible business. That's a public good. So that's available online for free. And the first course is on exactly risk-based due diligence. And in the next month or so, we'll have uh, specific courses on agriculture, electronics, uh, garments, and footwear. Under this rubric as well, we're developing practical tools, <coughs> excuse me, or rather recommendations of practical action companies can take to address specific risks. So in the next 12 months or so, we would have tools on deforestation in the agricultural sector, um, likely uh, cocoa and child labor, um, how due diligence can help address uh, that risk. And then finally, a new one, which I'm really looking forward to working on with, uh, with potentially some of you as well, living wages. Um, I think that's going to be quite a interesting, interesting one. And that will probably be looking at with living wages and living incomes in two sectors, the garment and footwear sector, as well as the agricultural sector. And then finally, with the OECD, so data is, is, is really a really important part. And unless you have agreed to write data, you can't really know what you're doing or what policies make sense. So uh, for us, it's really important that we have uh, data indicators to measure progress and uptake um, and on impact. So I'll leave it there, uh, Christelle, and um, looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Ivani. Um, thank you for this very clear and um, outline of what of what the, how the OECD is contributing to progress in in this space. Um, I'm now handing over to Helen Vermont from Michelin uh, to tell us a little bit about how the well, it's an example of corporates. How the corporates are basically putting into practice um, measures to to deliver sustainable sourcing. Over to you, Helen. Yes, hi. So I'm Helen Vermont in charge of sustainable purchasing for the Michelin Group, and I'm here in France. And I'm very happy to be with you today. Uh, if you want to move to the next slide, I just have one slide for you, but it's very dense. Um, so just to on the top of the slide, we present our overall approach. So what means sustainable purchasing for us here at Muslim? It's about what we buy, what types of material we buy, what types of components we buy, who we buy from, which suppliers, and also how we buy. It's our, like our own ethics. Um, and uh, for this, we have uh, different tools or different uh, 
things we, we use. So for, at first, the purchasing principles, which are actually a code of conduct for our suppliers, which details what is requested from our suppliers and what is recommended from our suppliers. Uh, we also have assessments to know which suppliers are more at risks than others. This we do with a third party, which is Ecovadis. And so purchasing principles and supplier assessments are for any kinds of purchase machinery, services, raw materials, of course. Raw materials are assessed for 90% of the spend. Um, for raw materials, and many and mostly, I would say, um, most of our raw materials are come from petrochemical industry or steel. And so we want to shift from those, um, I would say, not agricultural materials or maybe less sustainable materials to have more sustainable materials. So to shift towards recycled raw materials or renewable raw materials. Um, so this is a very great effort on our side because it's really a change of materials for three quarters of our raw materials. And uh, to have more sustainable mater raw materials, it's about um, the type of raw materials, but it's also about onboarding our suppliers on carbon neutrality. So we ask our suppliers to do reporting for transparency. And for this, we use the CDP program. And we also ask our suppliers to set ambitious um, emission reduction targets uh, to define which suppliers are our priority. We have a, an inventory for uh, regarding our CO2 em emissions of our raw materials. And we have a little uh, of um, conflict minerals in our raw materials. It's a very limited tonnage. We don't make batteries. Um, it's very limited, but still we take it seriously. So we have a created a um, conflict mineral policy, which define um, what we want from our suppliers regarding conflict mineral. But this is the overall approach. But for natural rubber, uh, we have defined a specific approach which goes on top of the overall approach um, because natural rubber has very specific stakes. Uh, for us, not raw material is, I would say, roughly uh, a fourth, a quarter of our raw materials. So it's um, very important. And uh, regarding stakes, it has environmental stakes and human rights stakes that can be different from the other raw materials. Uh, for instance, in our chain of supply for natural rubber, we estimate that we have somewhere 2 million farmers which are involved and mostly are Indonesia, in Thailand, and mostly are smallholders. So this is why we have this very specific approach. And also regarding natural rubber, the tire industry um, ha may have significant levers because tire industry uses about three quarters of the worldwide production of natural rubber. So we have quite a responsibility here. So for natural rubber, we have a very specific policy um, about 
a sustainable natural rubber, um, which is form very detailed and very specific, much more than the pr purchasing principles, which also apply, by the way, to uh, our natural rubber suppliers. But having commitments and a vision is one thing. Now we want to see where we are on our natural rubber purchasing. So we have assessments. So we have the Covadis assessments. So this is an assessment of our direct supplier, but we want to go up the value chain. So we use the rubber way tool to assess the value chain up to the smallholders. And then we want to act. So we have many actions on the ground in our own plantation, in plantation that we have in joint ventures, but not only. And the Cascade project, um, of which Farid is going to talk to you about, is one of the very latest projects that we have on the ground for natural rubber, because we want to really act at the small holder um, uh, level and scale. And then we have finally, we are part of the sectoral approach because to act as mission is one thing, but if we can act together with our other stakeholders, like other tire manufacturers, many rubber suppliers, vehicle makers, NGOs, this we can do and we will do better. So this is what the GPSNR, so it's a global platform for sustainable natural rubber. This is what it's about. So it's a very, a uh, short um, approach about, about what we do here at Michelin, because we could spend hours talking about it, but we just have a five minutes and now already went a little bit overboard. So I'm stopping. No, no, Helen, that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely perfect. It's, uh, <laughs> it was fas absolutely fascinating. It's interesting to see how you've gone you're going further and further into into detail. I, I, I like the um, I would call it the Russian doll approach of um, having principle overarching principle and then digging deep and developing further principles for a specific commodity. Um, really interesting. Um, the question will come at the end when I'm, when when maybe the audience and myself will 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 ask you a question on your presentations. I would now like to hand over to Farid who is going to pick up from where you left it, Helen, and talk about, uh, talk about Sapa, introduce, introduce Sapa, and then also talk a little bit about the, the, the project and what we're doing uh, with you. Over to you, Farid. Thank you, Crystal. Yeah, Farid, uh, my name is Farid Badash, and I'm delighted to take part in this conversation. Um, <clears throat> so I'll um, introduce briefly to what, what we're doing at, the, at, at the Sapa. So Sapa is, established as a data organization, so mission-driven, we're seeking for impact in response of a lot of things that have been uh, explored uh, by other um, interveners. So uh, as you can see, we, we work actually across a variety of raw materials, uh, not excluding the agricultural raw materials, the concrete mills, something you know well, for example. However, for the sake of the conversation today, let's focus on, the, on, on, the, on agricultural commodity. Our theory of change is fundamentally to drive consulting activities, enabling our clients, large companies and investors to frame and strategize priorities, for example, on human rights, on, um, on climate, and deploy solutions because we're solution-oriented organizations who have multiple risk remediation programs, combining technologies, uh, diversity of expertise, and 
introducing innovative finance to provide programs providing solutions for chains companies to accelerate transformations and address um, energy transition on the one hand um, and or on the other hand walk the talk on risk mitigation of a major uh, risks including human rights risk but others that can be identified across the chain um, to become a little bit uh, more specific on how we operate we have uh, uh, the capacity to operate with a, a global ecosystem enabling Xafa uh, to project and deploy programs across, really across the, uh, across the globe, and uh, to combine uh, the expertises which are needed because, of course, a lot of what's been uh, discussed up to now uh, implies that there is a lot of complexity to kind of uh, identify and, uh, and tailor very specific solutions, typically when it comes to farmers and agricultural supply chains. In this space, um, actually what we are doing is really to connect three nodes which fundamentally need to connect uh, together should we want, and that's what we, what we believe, uh, really have impact to improve uh, risks or build more resilient raw material and agricultural supply chains. So we take a farmer-centric approach because we think that we can really enable and help uh, the smaller community taking really a perspective, really being on their side on the one end, but at the very same time, we build some hybrid model where we take also the industry perspective. So we are very grounded into the, the priorities of uh, buyers from the industries to really connect uh, what can be deployed that can match needs of farmers on the one hand and needs from buyers, industrial buyers on the other hand. And because we want to scale the programs, we bring um, uh, um, working capital, I should say, and uh, in a broader we bring a financial engineering capacity to scale a program. And that's really innovative on, on multiple uh, uh, instances. So typically the programs we are deploying uh, when it comes to agricultural supply chain and uh, onboarding of, of small orders is fundamentally looking at addressing one simple goal in a way, working on the socio-environmental performance of, of the, the agricultural supply chain, which connects very well actually at the end of the day with a different time where presented by Shivani when it comes to um, human rights, animal welfare, environmental protection. Uh, but that implies to really take the farmer-centric perspective because we believe that this is really the note um, that requires very specific attention to improve their behavior and to incentivize them because they are the forefront at the end of the day of a lot of the environmental issues as much as they are suffering from a lot of insufficient uh, programs capable to really onboard them on better practices. And of course, we do that in a way that connects with the, what's important from a, I would say, a quality or competitiveness perspective that is that, uh, uh, the compliance that is that of the, of the buyers. And, and at the bottom, how we do that as uh, by delivering uh, services that are uh, uh, in the format of hybrid solutions, combining fundamentally as a primary vehicle, training, training which we deploy through a hybrid model combining face-to-face -face activities with a, a network of, of NGOs uh, that are deployed really on the ground combined with a mobile-based uh, tool which ensures that we can um, uh, uh, disseminate widely our content on the one end as much as we can collect widely information about how we are capable to improve practices on the ground. Uh, this shows in simple terms, the, the kind of, of, of capacity building programs that we can deploy 
uh, plug encryption supply chains. This, this is uh, uh, smaller data is typically a farmer uh, that owns a, a farm or a parcel that is, you know, below uh, two hectare size. It's pretty small. And we have some, some structures uh, capable to engage um, uh, on a regular basis with the farmer um, and deliver some content. We're using also some champion people who are at the forefront of good practices, which solidifies, I should say, uh, better practices for um, uh, interest, I would say, within the, the farming community. But because our um, solution is hybrid, and as you can see on the top right corner, we have the, those kind of, of, of mobile-based uh, content. We're capable to make sure that the farmer is capable to go back to, to the farm and disseminate more broadly the content with, with, with workers, with family, with others, which increases significantly. We have a multiplier by 5 to 15. Um, of, of indirect uh, beneficiary uh, people who benefit from, from the activities. But any other way, as you can see with the farm level impact um, uh, a tool that we're using through the mobile phone, we're capable to uh, engage the farmer on a regular basis to track on uh, how practices are improved. It's very simple questionnaires we are submitting, but they're, they're enabling us to have a baseline of information at the beginning. And later on, understand better how the farmer is capable to adopt better practices and improve, which means, if you look at that from the, the bio perspective, mitigate risks um, in, 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 other, in other perspectives. So to be more concrete about what we're talking about, as you can see, this graph hopefully shows very well the different levels that we are, we are exploring across, uh, across those, those programs. The dotted line shows typically um, a decent living income um, the level which we are um, uh, defining. Uh, at the end of the day, we say that we are exploring the farmer uh, perspective. We really want to make sure that we are capable to deliver a program uh, bringing those farmers and those communities beyond poverty level. Uh, and we are exploring multiple layers. For example, where we work on yield in a primary crop, uh, we increase the volume, the quality, and, and therefore the revenue that is directly generated from, from the, the training content. Uh, but we are exploring actually also other levels, as you can see, for example, income diversification. Uh, from a farmer perspective, a challenge is always that uh, uh, sometimes the revenue coming from a main crop is you know, something that is just coming once in a year or you, you don't really have a hand on, the, on uh, how much you can expect uh, to, to sell it and make money out of it. So diversification is good to build resilience and uh, balance revenues from, from multiple sources. Um, and we're actually also exploring the, the level of, of carbon. There are some methodologies out there. We have the ecosystem to explore additional or complementary methodologies uh, that we can deploy depending on the, on the crop and, and the geographies we are, we are operating. So long story short, at the end of the day, we are really using at the core with a mobile-based system and face-to-face -face engagement activities, some, some systems enabling to really onboard uh, farmers on their process, uh, building better um, environmental, social, and other, if I look at the um, OECD guidance, if I look at the different uh, uh, um, uh, areas of concern, uh, we explore how to, to improve that. It's not a uh, solution for everything, but it helps significantly, knowing uh, that at the end of the day, we are addressing here a population where roughly, uh, as Christian said, a bit earlier, 80% or sometimes even 95% of the smallholder people don't have access to uh, to training activities, so the, 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 the need is very is, is big, and the impact is, is very important across those programs. 
This is a very concrete illustration uh, that we have, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with, uh, with this, and uh, just building on and articulating from uh, Ellen's uh, uh, introduction or presentation of the broad approach led by, by Michelin on, on responsible um, purchasing activities, including natural rubber. So here we have a program which, um, interestingly, is something that is identified right now by the automotive industry and as the first natural uh, rubber project that encompasses the entirety of the supply chain. So it's interesting to have a, a program enabling the, the whole chain to really articulate activities and effort together um, to engage smallholders um, and with a focus on Indonesia, which happens to be the, the uh, primary uh, source of, uh, of production of natural rubber in the world. And this program is, is built to deliver um, capacity building activities across, across um, a pilot group of farmers with support of Indonesian um, industry uh, collecting natural rubber from, um, from smallholders. Um, so the, the program is really grounded, grounded in, the, in, the, in, 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 in the central Sumatra, um, to be more specific about the area where this program is, is, is deployed. And um, I think that provides, um, we are exploring our best, we can uh, deliver a, a, a natural rubber practices uh, to improve uh, activities from there, one. Two, we are actually also exploring diversification of, um, of, of revenues beyond natural rubber to balance revenue. And three, we make a, a particular effort to recruit youth because across a, a variety of, of agricultural commodities, we, the population is, is getting pretty old in a way. It's um, uh, and on the one end, and, and, and we are interested in, in women and how we can uh, make sure that those chains are actually also inclusive of, of, of women. Uh, I will close actually in a way with Dave to make sure that we have um, um, some time for, for a good discussion. Um, this is um, an inclusion actually also beyond uh, Ellen from Michelin to share actually and balance a little bit of perspective from the other industry sponsor of this program, Croatia. Um, so this is um, uh, a, they're, 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 how they, they view this program. I think, as Christian mentioned at the beginning, it's those programs are increasingly important because for the industry, it, you know, being capable to be a resilient chain implies to be able to ensure that the sourcing is increasingly capable to provide good evidence on the mitigation of risk and, uh, that, that are identified. Thank you, Farid. Thank you very much for this uh, this this um, overview of what um, Xapa is working on. Um, before I get into a couple of questions, which I will address to the whole panel, um, we've got a question from the from our, our attendees. Um, it's a clarification uh, with regard to what, how do we define decent living income, and do we have specific criteria? That's obviously for you. Um, that's for you, Farid. Um, I think that was on the one of the last slide with um, the impact on the smallholder with a layered level of income. Mm -hmm. So for us, we are using three sources uh, providing rough data based on a basket of product um, that gives a certain sense on uh, what. Um, a basket of product represents a 
the income that is needed for a household to survive. Um, and with three sources, we have uh, capacity to get a sense to triangulate information. One and two, as part of the baseline uh, effort that we're doing, we calibrate those uh, information at the local area we're working on to make sure that the basket is pertinent for the actual needs of the people um, and then to the founder communities we're working on. And this is done end to end with um, the, um, the, the NGO that um, is grounded in, um, in the village, the, the village communities. Okay, so that's how we design basically kind of a, a baseline rough number in a way. And those numbers is basically the baseline we, we're using to make sure that across the, the deployment of the program, they're capable to ensure that we, we, we maximize the number of people who go vote that. Thanks, Farid. Um, we've got another question. Um, thank you, by the way, to the attendees for um, submitting your engaging um, in with the, the, the conversation. Um, it's a question about um, Ari. Um, does he actually exist? But that's, that's more of a, of a mm -hmm. joke because we know that's representative. But um, what, what is the scale of the Suti approach? Um, and I think that's probably different, different answers to that. Um, so Farid, any, any yeah. comments on that in terms of scale? Sure, the theory of change of the whole program is clearly based uh, or defined to ensure and to address mass, um, a large volume of, of smallholders. But of course, that implies to work step by step. Uh, step by step means that uh, we need to ensure that we're right in what we want to deliver. So we need to calibrate typically the content uh, that we want to deploy across our training activities. For these, working with, um, uh, I would say, um, 100 of farmers is clearly sufficient. That's the first level. The second level then is to move to uh, something like a thousand, which basically is what's been uh, displayed in this uh, public, uh, publicly available uh, program uh, um, that I've just presented. And this is the right number to ensure that we have the industrial sort of capacity to, to have the, the, the right elements for uh, the right multiplying elements, I would say, because that implies to, to enter um, some industrialization activities for for training, replication of programs, and start to manage numbers. And then we move to next levels where basically our um, uh, programs are clearly based to address uh, um, for each of the commodities we're working on between 50 and 500,000, 100,000 farmers. And the value of the program comes at the moment when particularly we're capable to reach those volumes, one. And our ambition at uh, XAPA is basically to make sure that across commodities, we're capable to onboard one million farmer between now and 2030. Um, which I think that's a perfect, perfect time to open the, the floor to the other speakers in terms of scale, because as, as we know, um, working, working with the smallholder value chain is not easy by any means. It's, it's very complex, it's very fragmented, it's, it's, it can be costly. So the issue of scale is often, is often asked. So may I uh, direct this question also to Helen and Shivani to tell us what, what their views is on what is needed to achieve scale, because there is so much to be done. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that, Christelle. Um, no, absolutely. You know, there's, um, we need to move fast. Um, and I think, uh, well, 
for us, I think at the, at, uh, the RBC Center, we see scale happening at a number of levels. I mean, there are a number of tools that the government is, um, has at its disposal. Um, regulation is certainly one. There's also that can be, can be considered. Um, signaling, so that's in public procurement that can be used. Um, you know, the EU, even with the regulation, they're also partnering that with sort of this idea of, um, uh, what's it called, um, measures, supplementary measures, complementary measures that will help um, companies uh, both understand um, how to integrate uh, or meet the expectations under the you know, expected new regulation. Um, then there's also working with what we call um, market mechanisms. And that's where we look at, you know, really trying to uh, nudge and help or align um, existing industry certification programs with internationally backed recommendations. So that's another, um, you know, really potential multiplier because, you know, once those certification systems are actually aligned with um, standards that are internationally backed and backed by different perspectives, uh, then you can begin to see change happening. Uh, likewise, other multipliers include groups like um, exchanges. You know, so we've actually worked very closely with the London Metals Exchange and the Mineral sector, and they integrated these expectations into their members' code. Um, and that often then trickles down uh, in quite an effect. So uh, from your point of view, scale is, is a, if I'm hearing right, scale is achieved by... Of you know permeating through so many different angles um, with the same the same intent the same you know the same logic but going at it from different different stakeholder groups. Yeah, I think I think that's the the way to 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 yeah. do have to do it because I know we've I mean I've been working in this space now for over more than 10, 15, <laughs> many many years and uh, uh, it's just not enough to have. It's really great to have a, a few com companies and. Up and you know signal and trickle down through their own supply chains yes but we need change at scale at speed as well you know so yes. i'm just going to uh, flag into the chat some links and then just to answer sorry oh, thank you i've copy pasted i haven't just typed it all in um but there was the other point on the decent living income so gerhard you'd ask that i'm going to also copy paste in the link here the FAO um, hosts a interesting forum called the World Banana Forum. <laughs> um, and in that, there's a working group looking at shared value or sort of sharing the value along the, the whole chain. And that they look at quite closely at living income and they look at the anchor methodology in particular. So if that's something that you're looking at, um, I know we will be looking at that more closely in the next um, year or so when we start developing these practical actions on living income, living wages. Um, but that's something I think that if you're if you are right now grappling at that, that might be a, a useful um, um, site for you to look at. So that's, that's what I just said. It's working group two that looks at economic value distribution along the value chain, and they've got a bunch of um, papers that are out there that you can you can access. Thank you, Shivani, for this um, extra content. That's really helpful. Um, and Helen, um, moving to you now, uh, what, in terms of scaling, what does scaling mean and require from if you're a corporate and you're really trying to just work with the last mile? 
Well, actually, what we took is a risk-based approach. Rather than trying to have um, every single supplier uh, certified, we went another route uh, because certification typically is very slow. Um, if we look at what happened in the cocoa industry, for instance. Um, so we went another way. And so we had developed our own tool to have this risk assessment of our supply chain, our chain of supply, to identify statistically, um, you know, where are the most risk we have. So we don't need to have each and every smallholder um, be assessed because Globally, in the same area, they most of them have the same difficulty, same risks, and so we took a risk. We we went using our our rubberway tool, which is maps the risk in our supply chain, and where we see there are risks, then we have a specific project. So here, this launched the went to launch the Cascade project with uh, Xapa and Porsche. And so we don't want to have project everywhere, but really where it's most needed. So having a risk-based approach is really critical. So that's how we've seen it. That's really interesting, actually. But obviously, in the um, with the example of this Cascade project in Indonesia, you're you you you're being quite ambitious in terms of scale there as well, right? Yes, but actually, to us, it's not so large. So we want we have a project where the intention was it but to have a, something replicable that we could repeat elsewhere. So that's the intention. Yeah, so the scalability is in the mm -hmm. repl replicability. Can't say yes. that very well. Yes, mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I've got... So, Christelle, to add, I think the other thing one needs to put in the agricultural sector is informality, formality, right? Because that's another huge... Um, challenge really there's a there's a lot of informality particularly amongst the smallholders and so one of the other recommendations that we have in, wrapped into our guidances is collaboration with um, beyond just you know I know companies generally collaborate with other companies right but to really think wider and to, to actually collaborate potentially with local governments um, governments in the producer countries for example um, and that may not even be at the national level but it could even be at the regional the regional level because you need to get the smallholders particularly then the informal uh, smallholders to be formalized so that you can you know begin to see things happening at scale as well so that's another another thing to to consider as well yeah sure no that makes sense that makes sense um i've got a little cheeky question before we before we come to a close with farid um we've got about three minutes left um Basically, you know, um, copies on everybody's mind. And the question I'd like to ask you is, is the focus on, you know, the, the increasing focus on, on carbon and, and therefore on scope three emission, is this helping the work that you do or is this more of a, can it be, is it enter that it could be a distraction? So a bit cheeky for the end. But uh, yes, please, please give me your thoughts on that before we close. I think I've scared everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually here, uh, I would say for Michelin, it's 
we really focus more on uh, you know um, decarbonation on the other raw materials so it's it's a it's really a subject where we focus more on i would say really the other raw materials we look at it also anyway for natural rubber but the subject is very different uh, from the other raw materials so i, I don't see it so as much as a a distraction it's uh you know everybody has its own concerns so yeah so. no but it's in, it's interesting in itself that we can't take it for granted that this will become the the, the focus it doesn't change the agenda altogether um in your case it, it it hasn't um that's interesting and shivani from your point of view obviously with a guideline that you've published do you feel a pressure to to put even more emphasis on on the carbon piece or not? Yeah, you know the the whole climate. Um, uh, you know, Christa, before when we were we were logged in a little bit before. You know, this you asked what has changed dramatically in the last 10, 15 years or so. I think one would be. Um, I think you mentioned that as well. You know, the millennium uh, approach, right? They they, they really they're really quite consequential. They say, okay, where is my food coming from? What am I, what am I consuming here? Very interesting to see that. I have kids, you know, teenagers, and they're, they're both like really keen on that. But I think the other huge change that's happened and it's really accelerated in the last few years is front and center is climate change, you know? Um, and that has certainly put a lot of pressure as well on us because um, I have to be frank, I mean, the the, the overall OECD guidelines for multinational enterprise includes, of course, the environment. We have, you know, it's quite um, balanced. It's got all the different chapters. You know? um, but one of our first guidances on, on due diligence in the mineral sector was really about uh, cutting the link between um, human rights violations and armed conflict, right? Yeah. So the environment side was very limited. And, and that was all the conflict minerals uh, and called minerals as well work. Uh, I would say in the other guidances, it's a lot more balanced. There's more on the environment in there, but uh, limited information, limited guidance or specifics on climate, diversity, soil health. I mean, there's some language, but it's it's deforestation, but it's really not enough. This is why one of the things we're trying to do is to supplement this is to actually come up with these practical actions that based on the you know, overall framework of due diligence, deep diving into some of these, you know, really, um, really important topics, because we're seeing how integrated they are and the impact it also has then on human rights, right? The, the link, yeah. No, absolutely. No, it's, in, it's interesting. So maybe as we go forward, there will be more explicit attention to carbon being put in, in those guidance as well. Yeah, or I'll say more like, you know, and this is where the other thing I do also hear, we hear from companies and even other stakeholders saying like, we've got, you know, too much guidance as we need to really start being very proactive and um, practical, like, you know, let's, let's action, let's get, get some, some traction going on here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it- I've just seen that I'm being called for time, I think, by Farid, <laughs> who's put up the quiz. <laughs> I guess so, we're, we're, we're not expected to, to be on the quiz, right? So. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, Farid, uh, thank you very much. So before, I, I, I just want to close and thank you, thank very much my, my, all my speakers. It's been, it's been really interesting. I hope the um, audience feels the same. 
Um, we've got a few thank yous in the chat room. Um, thank you back to you. And Farid, I'm handing over to you to um, to take us through the little um, the poll. Yeah, no, it's just a poll that is activated for everyone to share their, their perspective. And I just wanted to build on the a comment made by, uh, um, by, by Shivani here. I think it's back to your point on climate. I think it's all connected. And I think there is no progress in scope three that can be expected on climate without robust understanding of the social dynamics uh, and the need. I mean, uh, it's really, so it's, it's really connected. And, and I say this because I don't think that climate is a distraction then. I think instead, um, for those really interested in climate, they really need to look closely at the, the social dynamic and work on those social dynamics to enable people and, and those, those aspects of the chain to understand what's expected from them to contribute to lower carbon production or whatever, contribution in scope three from that perspective on the one end. And on the other hand, I think it's, um, uh, it, it goes the other way around in the sense that it is because that the, the, the scope three is included uh, in a broad number of, of issues that they are uh, then themselves capable to become resilient uh, and, and address the, 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 the very unique uh, climate change impact that they have to, to, to go through themselves in a way. So it's, it's, it's far from a distraction. It's instead already, a, I would say, a, an umbrella. <laughs> the question was provoca provocative on purpose. <laughs> Thank you, Farid. Um, so I think this now brings us to a, a close. We want to be timely. Um, so big thank you again to all our speakers and also to all our attendees who've given us their, their ears and their thoughts and their comments. Much appreciated. Please do feel um, the, do give us some feedback through the poll. And um, we look forward to seeing you at our next webinar. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye.